Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for giving us some of your time today. This is episode number 54 of The Next Track. We are pleased to welcome Woody Mann to the show, who, besides being a musician, teacher, recording artist, historian, is a co-producer of and a participant in the film Harlem Street Singer, which is a documentary on the life and music of Reverend Gary Davis. Woody, we're glad to have you with us. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for asking me. Woody, we wanted to get you on the show because about a month ago, I watched your documentary called Harlem Street Singer about Reverend Gary Davis. I've been familiar with Gary Davis's music since the mid-70s, and obviously, like a lot of people of my generation, I discovered it through Yorma Kalkinen. And I've always been fascinated by that music. And when I first heard those songs, and when I first heard the album Harlem Street Singer, it, it just blew me away how wonderful this music was. It's great to finally see his story in a film, to, to see not only some old archival footage of Gary Davis, but to hear from the musicians who've studied with him and who've been playing his music. You go really far back with Gary Davis. How did you first meet him? Well, like I said in the film, basically I was just a kid growing up in Long Island and I was looking for a guitar teacher. And uh, the folk music scene was kind of a small scene back then. And I had a few books, Happy Traum's book, and there was the Folklore Center in New York. So you kind of knew who was who was in the folk scene. And I remember looking around for a guitar teacher, and I couldn't find one. And I remember from some of the books, I saw his name, and I just decided to look him up out of the phone book. And I was in Long Island. I just looked up Reverend Davis. I figured, let me check him out. And I also bought the Harlem Street Singer record. And at the time, I liked it, as they say in Israel. I didn't love it because there was a lot of shouting and screaming, and I was more into kind of learning the guitar stuff. And, um, but I figured, let me just meet the guy anyway, because I knew he wrote Candyman, Delia. There's a few songs going around in New York, so just wanted to check him out. So Annie, his wife, answered the phone, and I said, is this Reverend Davis, the guy who wrote Candyman? I said, yep. Yeah. I said, can I come over and meet him? She said, sure. So my mother drove me over the next day, and I walked in, and you know, I didn't know what to expect, because I didn't know if he taught guitar or for the rest of his music. But he picked up the guitar and started playing this this hesitation blues and Cincinnati drag flow drag tunes I'd never heard before. And I remember asking him, I says, what is that called? Because I was used to more kind of folk picking. And he said, Well, I call that ragtime. And I said, Well, can can you teach me that? You know, I was just blown away. And I heard a guitar sound that way, the volume, the swing, the syncopation. And it was something I I kind of heard a little bit like from early jazz, but but never on piano, but I never heard it on the guitar. And I was just literally blown away. And I went to my first lesson. And I remember I have the tapes of my lesson and I remember asking him, so, so what else do you do? Like I wasn't familiar with his music at all. And I'd see, you know, I said, just any play one song after another. I said, yeah, teach me that. And then we just began the journey. So it was a real period of discovery and, um, you know, every song was new and his playing was new and it was really old school. You know, it was, he'd teach, he'd play a lick that I'd play it back and it was no tablature, obviously, no, things like that. And I would take my lessons and then go home and kind of work through the tapes during the week and slowly, you know, learn his music. And, and as a good student, I would go home each week and kind of organize his songs and the verses and I'd write it out in tablature and all this stuff. And then I'd go to my lesson the next week and I'd play it for him and he'd play it back to me totally different. I think you say that in the film that that you'd be playing it one way and he'd be saying, no, I didn't play it that way. Exactly. I used to write it down like verse by verse and lick by lick. 
And, and he changed it around. I said, no, this is exactly the way I played in the tape. He goes, no, it goes like this. So he just constantly changed it. And I realized, you know, after a while, I kind of got the idea that he was improvising. And he had his kind of toolbox of, of vocabulary that he kind of mixed and matched. So I sort of got into it. But in the beginning, it was really daunting, you know. And um, But it was great. After a while, it loosened up. And I'd go there and we'd jam for a few hours. He'd teach me a tune. I'd play it back. He'd correct me. I'd just go on and on for, you know, he teach me one song, would take a couple of hours to teach it. So, you know, I mean, I was okay, but I think anybody could have learned under those circumstances because it was just drill, drill, drill. And that was it. And, uh, and I just had the enthusiasm. I just loved them. And it was just a great experience. So I look back and it's like, sometimes I just think it's just like dumb luck that I found the guy. And, um, and he was well known at the time. I mean, he was concertizing. He had a manager. I knew him when he was off the streets. So I didn't know him when he was, um, you know, walking the streets in New York, and he had a little modest house in Queens. Oh, this was already when he was in Jamaica. This wasn't when he was in the Bronx. Okay, I met him when he was in Jamaica. Yeah, and his little two two family house, and his wife was great, and it was a very church church house, very safe environment. My mother used to drive me over there, make sure it was all cool, and she'd split and leave me there for the afternoon and pick me up, and so it was just really a great scene. I was very lucky, and I like I said, I taped all my lessons. I have all the old reel to reels. And that's really the only way I could learn it. So I'd go home and yeah. go back and forth and learn it. So it was just fantastic. What, what did you have? One of those big woolen sacks that you took with you? <laughs> I had an old uh, Lafayette clunky old reel-to-reel tape recorder <laughs> with the seven-inch reels. And, of course, I'd buy the cheapest tape imaginable and, write, and play it at like one and seven-eighths ips. You know? Yeah. So now when I played the tape back, you know, it would always get, you know, it always break. So every like 12 inches, there'd be a piece of scotch tape around it. It was just, it was kind of funny, but. But uh, now I found the tapes and I digitized them so they're okay. But now the, the leader just shreds. So I, I kind of wish I had discovered, I wish I was a few years older and I had discovered the guitar a few years earlier because I grew up in Jamaica Estates, which isn't very far from where he lived. And the idea of having someone like that just within walking distance to take guitar lessons, it could have changed my life. It was amazing, I know. So you were sort of the second wave of students because I've, I've heard about the students who discovered them in the Bronx like Stefan Grossman. When you were studying with Gary Davis, how much interaction did you have with these other students and how many were there? Not much. I mean, I didn't see, every now and then I would see like Bromberg would show up for a minute or I think once I saw Van Ronk show up, but I didn't know these guys. I, mean, I had all their records and they were my heroes. And uh, I think at the time, I didn't even know Stefan at the time. That was a little later. And uh, so I didn't see a lot of his other students, just me and a buddy my friend Peter and I'd meet this guy, Alan. There's a few of us that we'd meet sometimes at Davis's house, but I didn't see a lot of his other students. And, you know, every now and then Annie would have a little playing party in the basement. So students would show up and there'd be like four or five of us all sitting around trying to play like Davis and stuff. So, but um, I think I was just younger and I didn't, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know him on the streets. I didn't have a career. I wasn't performing. I was just, you know, in high school trying to learn guitar. So, it was a different scene. So I, I guess, you know, to answer your question, yeah, I wasn't part of that. that um, the first wave. No, not at all. So, and that was interesting, you know, when I did the film, when Trevor and I were researching the film, Trevor Lawrence, the director, you know, we, we realized that when I knew him, you know, I didn't really ask him a lot of questions. You know, there's so much we don't know about him. And he was not really interviewed. Stefan gave me some of his interviews. They're very helpful for the movie. But, you know, I didn't ask him, you know, where were you born? How many kids did you have? What was your wife, first wife's name? All this kind of stuff. Because I just want to learn guitar. You know, I never thought about actually archiving him and interviewing him. 
and doing the movie, we realized there's a lot, a lot of periods in his life we don't know where he was. You know, from like 1939 to 50, we knew he was kind of in New York, but Tiny Robinson, Led Belly's niece, gave us some insights about where he was. John Cohen, later on in the 50s, spotted him in the city. But there's a big period where we don't know how he survived, where he lived, what he was doing. You know, I was curious why he decided to move to New York rather than a more blues-centric town like Chicago or Memphis or St. Louis or something. And in the film, it's mentioned that his wife or her family had something to do with that decision. But do we know why he chose New York? Not really. We went down to Durham, you know, and we kind of researched where he was playing in tobacco warehouses, which is fascinating. Him and Blind Boy Fuller, they would play down there. And, um, you know, like around 1939 or so, we got the feeling that either Annie had some family or friends in New York, and also there's maybe a better social system in New York, social welfare, more opportunities in New York. So I don't know what the catalyst, what the reason was exactly, but we know around that time he came to New York. And he came to New York a little earlier to do some records. That didn't work out, and he went back down south. So it's a little hazy. But we know he was in New York in the 40s, but he didn't record in the 40s. Most of his playing was just on street corners back then. That's what I'm told, yeah. We you know, talked to people who remember seeing him on 48th Street, Broadway, playing outside. Um, and Barry Kornfeld, who knew him very early. John Cohn, they'd see him on the streets playing. So yeah, I think he played up in the Bronx, um, up in Harlem, um, Glenn, Glenn uh, Chandler knew, knew him up in the Bronx, drove him around, John Hammond. So, you know, people in their late 50s, that's when he was starting to emerge a little bit. And we have some information. But before that, it was very sketchy. And um, it's always been fascinating to me that how he survived. And, and also, the, you know, to me, he, he was never bitter. He was never one of these guys that were kind of, you know, he seemed bitter about his life and walking the streets and he should have had more success or anything like that. I always got the feeling he was, he was just cool. You know, he was just fine with what he had, you know, God will provide. And he was, you know, church, church lady and everything revolved around the church on Sunday. And that's what kept him. He was able to get some income from royalties as a composer though. Right. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but he did manage to get some cash flow from his songs, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know the specifics, but yes, right. When he was sort of re, quote, rediscovered, you know, by a lot of the, um, you know, Barry Kornfeld and, and Happy Traum and a lot of people who, Pete Seeger, of course, who put him on his TV show. I mean, I think his songs started to get around. Like we say in the movie Candyman, Samson, Delilah, Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded that tune, which, you know, uh, you know, the story goes, Petey Arrow says in the, in the movie that... Uh, they asked him if he composed the song, and he said, no, it was revealed to me. <laughs> so, but anyway, he got some royalties from that. So, yeah, he started, then he was concertizing. He had a manager when I knew him. He was playing the folk circuit, a couple of tours. So, yeah, he was getting by on his music at that point. There's a biography by Ian Zach that I've been reading called Say No to the Devil. And one thing that he explains the royalty things, and the royalties from Samson and Delilah were enough money to buy the house in Jamaica. And that was the first time that they owned a house. And what was he in his 60s? And he had less than 10 years to live, I think, at that time. So it was, in a way, finally for him to have made it. But it took so long for him to get there. But in part because he never really seemed like he wanted to have a career 
recording music. And one thing I think is really important in his life story is that initially he was playing blues and ragtime, but then he decided that he was only going to play these gospel songs. And a lot of that probably had an effect on him not wanting to record blues music, which is what would have sold. Absolutely. I think that's that's right. When he became a minister, he kind of put down the blues. And if he was to continue playing blues, who know who knows you know, what would have happened? And that's that's the curiosity about Davis. I mean, whether he wanted a career or not, I don't really know. Whether he really wanted to be famous, I know he was very proud of his music, proud of teaching, proud of teaching me and his other students. You know, we say you go out in the world, and you tell them I taught you that kind of thing. So he was very very proud of it, and he was definitely a true believer. His music had a message, and when he performed, he was preaching. And so that's why I think in some ways his music kind of got lost in the histories because he really wasn't a blues player. Player, and a lot of historians. They don't know where to put him. You know, he was didn't follow the Charlie Patton, you know, Robert Johnson, you know, lineage of, of blues. And uh, his music was also very complicated. So he didn't really spawn a whole group of guitar players that played like him. And so his music was sort of this one-off. And, um, you know, over the years he was playing the gospel music, very melodic, very harmonically sophisticated. And then he picked up a lot of, because of the street singing, a lot of novelty songs, folk songs, you know, body songs, all kinds of wacko stuff. And um, so was, he was a very, you know, one-off player that way. And I think that's why when he was sort of rediscovered in the 60s, I think a lot of his music resonated with the folk scene. A lot of the folk song, Candyman, Cocaine, and then songs like Death Don't Have No Mercy started to resonate. Um, and also his playing, his guitar playing just flipped everybody out because he wasn't just playing 12-bar blues. He was playing this other stuff like ragtime, like this kind of stride piano approach that nobody who was alive played that way. And it just, you know, it flipped me out. And I'm sure it flipped everybody out who was into guitar at the time and wanted to hear it. And on top of that, he would bang on the guitar and he would hoot and he would do these slides and everything. As far as technique is concerned, another interesting thing to point out is that pretty much he only played with one thumb and one finger. Whereas most finger pickers use two or three fingers. Yeah, that's true. Did, did he teach you to play with just one finger or did you adapt to using two fingers? I mean... No, he, he, didn't, he didn't say do this or do that. I just remember at the time, I just wanted to play just like him. So my, my, my role at the lessons was to imitate him. Yeah. So I would yeah. play with finger picks, but I used three fingers, you know. I used finger picks and to him, the sound was everything. So it wasn't just to get the notes. It was to get the sound and the swing, and that kind of thing. So for me, I was playing with my bare fingers. I had to put picks on just to hear myself. So that was, that was the whole idea. And looking back, it was, it was a great thing to do because it took me out of my comfort zone. And obviously, I just had to just mimic him. And I was just like a little Davis for a while. And that was a great discipline. And then after a while, you, know, you start getting into your own thing. Yorma does a version of Candyman with Hot Tuna on one of their albums. And um, I'm really familiar with it. I, I really like it a lot. And it really begins with, with Yorma kind of futzing around and doing some vamping and there's some inverted syncopation and there's some fun stuff going on. And the band kind of comes together like a parade is coming together and the song finally clicks in and the singing begins. And I always thought that the beginning was just kind of like the band kind of improvising the beginning. But in the film, there's a clip of Reverend Davis playing Candyman and he plays it exactly the same way. And here... Here I was thinking that what I thought was improvisation was actually the way the song goes. It was it was really amazing. No, it is extraordinary. I know what you mean. And like doing the movie was great for me because I had to go
go back. I mean, I play his music, but you know, I don't perform a lot of his music and I kind of stopped playing it. And doing the movie kind of gave me that opportunity to go back and listen to everything he played and go through all his catalog and his music. And, you know, I learned a lot by doing that. First, what you said, how complicated it was, how worked out it was, um, how showy it was. I mean, a lot of the things I thought were improvised, I realized, wait a minute, that mistake he did in 1962, <laughs> he made that same mistake in 1935. I said, wait a minute, something going on here. So it was like, no, he worked that out. He had that really little weird 2-4 bar or that extra note, whatever that was. And so I realized, oh, he really had his arrangements. He really worked it out. All the hooping and hollering and all that stuff. But within that, you know, he would improvise. He would shift the rhythms, change it around. But he kind of, you know, it's like any performer. You know, you have your, he had his, his, um, his repertoire and his tunes. And he, to him, it was all about, you know, like any performer, telling a story. And, and not just the notes. It wasn't about just guitar. It was about keeping the rhythm, keeping the swing, keeping the message. And a lot of times when you hear his music, He's just, you know, his voice is hooping and hollering and the notes are kind of dead notes and he's banging on the guitar, but it all works beautifully. You know, it's this beautiful full package. So and I think that's the other reason why a lot of people, he sort of gets overlooked. And I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to do the movie is because he's sort of overlooked in the history books as sort of in Americana roots music, his place in history, because and he wasn't influential to other musicians. But I think his music was so complicated that... Um, you know, a lot of people couldn't play it. Or, or they couldn't figure it out in the way that a, a lot of the blues, you can listen to a record and if you're a decent guitarist, you can figure out how to play it. But with his stuff, you can't figure it out from a record. You could learn it being in front of him watching him play it. But there, there are all these different kinds of syncopations that make it hard to figure out. I've been badly playing guitar for 40 years. And last year I bought a uh, a decent parlor guitar and I've been sitting down with some DVDs and tab and stuff like that. And I was just recently trying Candyman and I I think it was something that Stefan Grossman said about how they finally figured out that the melody starts on the upbeat and that it's not an empty bottom beat in the bass thing where you go boom, 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 boom. And that it's not that the measure starts on the top beat, which almost never happens in that sort of music. So those, those things are unexpected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he had a lot of those, you know, odd rhythms and things and where it came from, you know, how he resolved things. It's, that's what's the beauty of his music. He had that really deep sense of syncopation and, and, um, and the way he put, put the music together. And I think that's where, you know, he really, um, where he got it, we don't know. I mean, obviously his influences came from, you know, a lot of the local dances, the buck dancing and the, the novelty songs and the medicine show tunes and, and the religious tunes and gospel. So it was a real confluence of a lot of different styles. And, um, you know, a typical Davis concert, he would go from a religious tune to a, to a ragtime tune, to a body song, to a, almost a children's song, you know, or a funny song, come up and see me sometime, bring your dinner in your hand. You know, he, he knew how to get an audience going. He was very charming in a way on stage, but also very, very, um, very serious about his music and very serious about his teaching. He was very, um, I always got the feeling he enjoyed teaching. You know, I was the one who had to leave the lesson because my hands were tired. You know, I, I got to go now, B. Davis. <laughs> Your fingertips start hurting after a while. And he had nothing better. I caught him in a perfect time of his life. He had nothing better to do than teach me guitar. You know what yeah. I mean? Anybody guitar. Yeah. Because yeah. when he was off the, the concert circuit, he'd just be home, sit in his easy chair, and you know, spend the whole day in his house teaching songs. So it was such a gift, you know, looking back. But um, 
but it really was it was really an eye opener doing the film and listening to his his output. And I think you know a lot of his music. Um, I think in some ways he was over recorded towards the end of his life because you know he there's a lot of tunes where he sounds tired and he sounds a little out of tune and things. And I think because he was alive and he wanted to obviously make money and people recording him and. And so, in, in some ways, I think he was over-recorded. But the first few albums are just wonderful. Extraordinary. They boil it down to like a, you know, 25, 30 tunes that are just like unbelievable. Wasn't, wasn't Harlem Street Singer re- recorded by Rudy Van Gelder? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, what better combination of musician and, and engineer to record something like that? I know. And, and you, can hear the, you can hear the energy and the spontaneity in that album. And, and he generally didn't do more than one take when he recorded anything. He just generally got it right. Obviously, no such thing as overdubs for music like that. No, you get, when you listen to that, you know he's right in the moment. You know, he's, he's right there. You know, he's got something to say, and he's right in the moment. And it's just, you know, whether it's, I don't know if it's one take or two takes, I wouldn't be surprised if he just blew in the studio and did the whole thing in one afternoon. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, but that's, yeah, that's one of his best, for sure. You, you say that he's kind of forgotten, but to me, and I was saying to Doug before the show started, in, in many ways, he seems to me to be one of the most influential blues guitarists. And, you know, we've got Robert Johnson, who, what, I think there were 28 songs, 12 of which all sound the same. They have that opening sort of, you know, seventh fret kind of thing. But he didn't have any students, whereas Gary Davis taught so many excellent musicians who've been spreading this music. And, and now I guess we're in the sort of second generation of people learning his music. Yeah, yeah that's true. You'd think there'd be more, he'd be more influential. But I think in some ways, because he wasn't a blues musician, it didn't resonate. I mean, blues is sexy, you know, and blues is blues. So gospel music isn't. And ragtime music is very, in some ways, esoteric in terms for guitar players. But blues, you know, that's, that's a different kind of thing. And he didn't play a lot of blues. So I don't think of him in the same light as someone like Robert Johnson or Charlie Patton or even, you know, uh, even some of the early ragtime players like Blind Blake, because... He wasn't playing blues. And I think that's what was interesting in the movie. When you think about the people he influenced, it was really the people in the folk scene who knew him. Stefan, Yorma, John Ammon, Bromberg, all these people who, John, you know, um, John Cohn, they, they knew him at the time and learned from him. And, uh, you know, they, in turn, they taught their students. But in terms of an audience, he wasn't popular in his day among an African-American audience. He didn't have an African-American, except for the church. And his whole career he didn't. His records didn't sell very well. Um, so that's why I think he just sort of got lost in terms of his place. And I think to me that's one of the reasons I wanted to do the film because that's a real American art story because unless you fit into a category, you get lost. Yeah. And what I love about him is he didn't. And because he didn't, he's not listed in the history books. He's In the blues books, he's a footnote. You know, Blind Gary Davis in the Carolina, you know, that kind of thing. So because he didn't quite fit in, you know, to the – you know, the blind Willie McTell in Georgia and the, and the, the Mississippi line and, and his, his records and the influences of, of the regional blues styles and stuff. And he just was a great artist in his own right. And I think it's in, in really incredibly unique in terms of his style and approach. Because I don't know anybody who played like him in his day. And I don't know anybody who played before him like he, you know, like he played. So where he picked it up, who knows? And where it went, it definitely went to the white audience in the 60s and they picked it up and took it and um you know when we're doing the film we're trying to think you know what young people today play his music and there's not a lot so it's not like robert johnson where you could see 
He's covered by the Stones, covered by someone else. His music will always be covered by somebody. Kind-hearted woman, Crossroads. Because that music, there's a certain, it's a beautiful music. It's timeless. It's great. But, you know, tunes like, I don't know, Pure Religion, Death Don't Have No Mercy, Cincinnati Flow Rag, Make Believe Stunt, they're not as coverable in that sense. Well, they got covered a lot in the, in the 60s and the 70s, but I guess it's fallen out of fashion. I guess he has not forgotten, I guess maybe it's just a generation of us who grew up listening to that kind of music who still remember it then. It's like I'm teaching now up in Berkeley College of Music up in Boston, and it's, it's a gift to be up there and work with the students. And, you know, turning them on to Gary Davis. And, you know, a lot of them, of course, never heard of Gary Davis. And when you turn them on to the music and they listen to it, they go crazy. They love it. You know, they're, they're playing the music. And so I think a lot of it is just exposing people to the music. And I think it's important that we can keep it, obviously keep it going. And that's the reason I want to do the film. At least get his story out there and get his music out there. And also show that his music was even more than who he was as a performer. Like he wrote a lot of great tunes that if you take it away from who he was as a performer, they still stand on their own as great tunes. So we kind of wanted to explore that in the movie. That's why we put together the quartet with Bill Sims and Dave Keyes and Brian Glassman to put that together to show that obviously his music is totally interpretable. Right. I was, I was going to mention that. So in the film, I think you perform, what is it, three or four songs. You call this the Empire Roots Band, and there's a CD available with 11 songs. And where is... One would expect maybe that you just do the, the solo acoustic guitar versions of it. You don't. You do it with a band, with, you know, four people. And it is, it is the kind of blues music that can be transposed to these different size ensembles. Absolutely. And I think Davis's music, like, like any good music, is you, you make it your own. And uh, you interpret the tunes. You know, so we got together with, you know, great musicians, Bill Sims, Dave Keyes, Brian Glassman. And the idea is what we wanted to do is film the rehearsal. And it was kind of a mistake. We went to the studio. We wanted to film the rehearsal to talk about Davis's music and over kind of an eavesdrop on the rehearsal to talk about what his music was about, what is syncopation, what's improvisation. You know, to preach, we didn't want to preach to the choir in the movie. We wanted to make it to a wider audience. So we wanted to kind of explain what his music was about. But we got into the studio and for that reason, we didn't rehearse. So I just sketched out a few charts, gave it to the guys and said, okay, we're just going to run through this and they're going to film us talking. But what happened, we ended up playing and they filmed it and we just did one take and we just said, wow, this is pretty good. We're just going to keep it. So what's the reception to this movie? Is it is it out there? Is it, are a lot of people discovering it? You know, you talk about Berkeley. Are you getting guitar students to, to, to pick up on this and say, you know, why don't we know about this man? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We did a screening at Berkeley. We've done the festival circuit. We've premiered it here overseas, Australia, England. So we've done about 25 festivals. It's on you know, iTunes now, Amazon. So it's available everywhere. And um, yeah, I think the feedback I'm getting has just been, been great. A lot of things that people didn't know about Davis. And um, just it feels good to just tell his story to people that didn't know him before. Well, it's really a wonderful documentary. I recommend that everyone check it out. There'll be links in the show notes. Woody, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us about this. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. All right, that was pretty cool. Harlem Street Singer is a great documentary. You should definitely check it out. It is time now for our next tracks. Kirk, what will you be listening to this week? My next track this week is an album by jazz pianist Brad Meldow. And I'm picking it because two days after we record this, I'm seeing Brad Meldow perform live in Manchester here in the UK. I've been a fan of Brad Meldow for a very long time. 
And I've never seen him live, and this is the first time, and I'm really excited. I've got front row seats right in front of the piano. I mean, what a better place to be. Interestingly, he's an artist I discovered because of the iTunes store back in the day. In the early days of the iTunes store, there wasn't a whole lot of music, so you could browse a genre, and you could pretty quickly go through all the jazz music there was back in 2001, 2002. And I discovered one of his early albums, and the one I'm going to pick is my next track, it has my favorite Brad Meldow song, which is actually a cover song. The album is called Songs, The Art of the Trio, Volume 3. He did four albums called The Art of the Trio, Volumes 1, 2, 3, and 4. Meldow plays either as a solo pianist or as a trio. And this album features five songs that Meldow wrote and five cover songs. Now, jazz musicians are always playing standards. They're always playing cover songs. One of them is the Rodgers and Hart song, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, which, you know, Frank Sinatra sang so well. But there are two other songs on it, which are a bit surprising. And this is something that Brad Meldow does. He, he covers musicians from a different period. One of them is Nick Drake's song, Riverman, which in Brad Meldow's version is really interesting. But the other one, and this is my favorite Brad Meldow song, and... For those who ever want to test a hi-fi system, this is my hi-fi test song. It's Radiohead's Exit Music for a Film. The reason I use this for hi-fi testing is because you get the piano and the bass and there's some extraordinary cymbal work by drummer Jorge Rossi. The whole album is really good, but it's, it's very interesting to hear how Meldow combines a Rogers and Hart song and, and a, a, a Johnny Richards, Carolyn Lee song, Young at Heart, with Nick Drake and Radiohead, as well as his own songs, which are wonderful. So it's Brad Meldow's Songs, The Art of the Trio, Volume 3. Doug, what are you listening to this week? Well, I generally don't go out of my way to look for new music. That is, new music produced by the new bands of today. Because, as I've said before, I'm just too busy catching up on old music. But every so often, it's kind of unavoidable. Uh, I visit a website called the AV Club for most of my culture news. They review TV shows and books and movies and all kinds of stuff like that. And frequently, uh, they will post video clips from web shows that they produce that feature new bands. And recently, they featured a band called The Regrets. That is the word regret with the feminine suffix ets at the end, The Regrets. Three of the band members are young women. I believe they're teenagers. And uh, so they were doing this version of Fox on the Run by The Sweet. You know, that song from the 70s. And it was, it was pretty cool. They did a really nice job with it. So I thought I'd check out their album, which is called Feel Your Feelings, Fool. The Regrets is sort of your basic garage rock quartet, and I was really delighted that young people can still crank this stuff out, and in, in a really charming way. So if you're wondering where all the poppy, funky garage rock bands went, I would definitely check out The Regrets. Feel Your Feelings, Fool. It's my next track. This has been The Next Track a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>